Please turn with me to Genesis and chapter 6. Our message this morning is entitled Salvation's Incredible Plan. This is a dark chapter that ends with great light. Genesis chapter 6. Is there a chapter of the Bible that describes the state of the world then and also now? Like Genesis chapter 6, we thought last week of how the world was corrupt. But Noah, verse 8, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The world was swept over with sin and corruption and there was death and there was degeneration on every scene. There will just be eight souls saved, rescued. What was the population of the world when Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord? Many people think millions, hundreds of millions possibly, eight people will be rescued. I can't exaggerate It's not possible to describe as God does in Genesis chapter 6. He says that the thoughts of the hearts of men and women were only evil continually. Do you know when we look at the world today, don't we see a similar level of evil and sin? And people living without a thought for God, without a thought for truth, each man and women doing what's right in their own eyes. That's what we see. Yet there is hope in this chapter. The Lord draws near to Noah and Noah finds grace and there's going to be launched the most mammoth project ever to be devised. Salvation's incredible plan. And that's what we're going to consider this morning. There is going to be a rescue plan. God is in heaven. He looks down upon earth and he says, no, I cannot destroy all of the earth. I will destroy and reshape Most of it, most of the animals, most of the people will be destroyed and they must be destroyed because they would have destroyed themselves. Such was the hatred and animosity and evil in the world of Noah that God had to come in judgment. But as he comes with judgment, so he comes with salvation. And that's God's way. He never ultimately destroys everything. He comes with grace, mercy. He comes with arms outstretched wide to save all that will call upon him. All that will say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
So that's what we're going to consider this morning. But first of all, in this chapter, we see a very large contrast between what the Bible calls the ungodly and the godly. There will just be eight Christians, eight godly people. Am I being judgmental? Oh, you can't say that. How do you know if he or she is a Christian? The answer is I don't. Neither do you. But God does. God reads the hearts, the minds, the thoughts of every single person. Now, we have some ideas because we see the fruit in the life of a true child of God. We thought about it, love, joy, peace, and so on. But we don't ultimately know. Sometimes, even as a pastor, I'm fooled. People that I think are Christians and they give good evidence and they go off and live a life that shows they had no peace with God. They didn't really trust in him. When the trouble came, there was no faith there. They didn't have what we call a hold on God, a hold on his truth. When the flood came, they were drowned. Drowned in sin. Drowned in destruction. They didn't come. Well, let's look. Let's look first at Noah. We see some lovely words that describe Noah. We thought last week, verse 8, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That's conversion. When you become a Christian, because nobody is born a Christian, you don't go to school and become a Christian. You need to find grace in the eyes of the Lord. That's when a person is converted. They come to find grace. And this is what it says of Noah, verse 9. Three words that describe Noah. Now that he's found Christ, he's become a Christian, he's described as a just man. What does that mean? It means when you look at Noah's life, he loves justice. He loves what's good and what's right and what's pure. He hates everything that's the opposite. When he sees injustice, when he sees wrong in the world, Noah says, I hate that, but I love what's true. I love what's pure. I love what God defines as truth. Noah was a just man. Secondly, it says in verse 9, he was perfect. That doesn't mean he was sinless, but he was complete. He had integrity in his heart. That word, I love it. Do you love that word? Integrity. If you are a Christian, you want to have integrity in your heart. Everything about your life is to be consistent. Everything about your life is to be in agreement with God. You're to be united for him, 
united with him. You're to promote his truth. You're to love him. That's what it means to be perfect. Noah was a sinner. He would get drunk. He would fall into sin. The word here, perfect, doesn't mean he wasn't somebody that sinned. But his heart, his desire, his choices, his pathway in life was pure, blameless. There was nothing in Noah's life that if you challenged him and said, that's not right, Noah would say, you're right. I shouldn't have done that. He was easily challenged about anything that was wrong in his life. That's what it means. He had a perfect attitude to God and to his truth. But there's a third thing here. It says he was a just man and he was a perfect, blameless man. But there's something else. Like Enoch, the characteristic of Noah's life was he lived it with God, for God, walking alongside God. So we can say these three things. The chief rule of Noah's life was God's word. The chief companion, his friend, was God. And the end of Noah's life that he looked to was God. Can you say that? Who's your closest companion? Is it the Lord Jesus Christ? Who's the rule of your life? What do you determine? What's right and what's wrong? Is it God's word? The Church of England have got into a bit of a mess in recent days. It's been over the news this week. How do you define What's right? What's wrong? How do you define marriage? How do you define what God will bless and what God will not bless? One man says, well, I think I know the way. I see a nice person and he happens to live with another man. And the Bible says that's not God's way. That's not me saying it. Do you see you get into a terrible mess if you're ruled by the opinions of a hundred people, because we all have different opinions. But when you come like Noah, and Noah said, I will walk God's way, I will have him as my rule in life, and he will be the ultimate judge that determines what's right and what's wrong, you see a heart that's perfect and blameless and just and upright. So that's the godly man, the godly woman. Is that you and me? I'm not a godly person. Sometimes people think of the man or the woman that stands at the front of the church and says they must be high and holy. We're all sinners. A pastor just has the responsibility to be a better example to the people within the flock. But Noah was a sinner. And yet he was the leader in his generation. He was the preacher of righteousness. 
He was the one that stood before the people and said, this is the way, walk therein. That's the godly person. Well, what about the ungodly? Psalm 1 says, the ungodly are not so. What a contrast. Never think that a Christian and a non-Christian are much of a muchness. It's chalk and cheese. It's night and day. It's all the difference in the world. The ungodly are not so. They're like the chaff. They're like the dust. There's nothing to them. It's what the Bible teaches us. What about the ungodly? Verse 11 tells us the earth was corrupt. Verse 12 It says again, it was corrupt. That word corrupt means twisted, perverted, bent, not straight like the pathway that Noah walked on, but twisted. When you see somebody that's got a warped heart, an inconsistent life, you see perversion and twistedness. You see one thing in private, another thing in public. You don't see that consistency and integrity. And that's what it describes here. God looked upon the earth and behold, it was twisted. It was destined to be ruined. That's what the word corrupt means. The people hated God They didn't have time for God. They didn't want his ways. They wanted what suited them. But you say to me, perhaps they had a bad upbringing. Maybe it was their environment. They just, they were born in a country that was corrupt. Or in a family that didn't give them a good example. Sometimes people say that. Don't blame me for my sin. That was my dad's fault. He set me a shocking example, and I've just inherited it from him. Well, is that what the Bible says? Verse 12. Let's read it carefully. God looked upon the earth, and behold, this was God's description. It was corrupt, perverted, twisted, for all flesh had corrupted his way. Do you know when it comes to sin, there's a choice involved. When you open your mouth, you're making a choice about every word you say. When you have thoughts and daydreams and fantasies and imaginations, you're making a choice. When you do something that you should not do with your hands, your eyes, your heart, you're making a choice. The verse says, each person perverted his way. Never ever blame anybody else for your sin and my sin. When I speak wrongly and I'm not thoughtful, I'm not sensitive, I say something and I hurt somebody's feelings. 
that's my fault. That's because I didn't think carefully. I didn't think sensitively. I didn't choose my words in a way that wouldn't offend. That's my responsibility. Every person corrupted his way upon the earth. Do you know it's one of the characteristics of the day and age that we live in that people say, it's not my fault. Don't blame me. The reason the world is polluted, it's not my fault. It's their fault. All the plastic clogging up the oceans, it's their fault. The world may be getting warmer, it's their fault. The problems at schools, with more and more children having to be asked to leave school because their behaviour is so bad. Whose fault is that? Each individual makes a choice. Parents make a choice how they live. Children make a choice what they say, what they do. We are all responsible. Do you know one day, one day we shall appear before God. Look at verse 13. God speaks to Noah and says, The end of all flesh is come before me. God sees the end. He sees where this is going. He sees the problems get worse and worse and worse. And he sees it before his very eyes. And he could tell, he knew what would happen. Well, that's the godly and the ungodly. And it says in verse 13 that God sees, God knows, and God speaks. Who does God speak to? Does he speak to everybody? No, it says he spoke just to one man. One man. Sometimes God just speaks to us directly through his word. Not to everybody. He speaks to his own people, the people that are listening. The people that want to hear him. And if he speaks, we will understand. God said to Noah, Noah, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. All the world is full of corruption and violence. But it says, verse 13, the earth is filled with violence, war, destruction, murder. God sees. God knows. God's going to do something about it. Not immediately. Because God is so gracious. He never comes down with instant judgment. That's not what the Bible teaches. He gives time and more time to repent. So God sees, God looks, God knows. What will he do? Will he flood the world immediately? No. He's going to launch an enormous project. This project has never been conceived it comes from a different world. Nobody has ever thought about the components of this project. Do you think Noah had ever built a, a boat before? 
I don't think so. Do you think he'd ever shaped wood and on that scale? I don't think so. This was from another world. And that's what we're going to see in the minutes that we have this morning. Salvation's incredible plan. This is the plan. Verse 14, he says, Noah, I've seen, I've looked, I've seen the sin of the world, I've seen the violence, and I won't destroy everybody straight away. I want you to go and make the most enormous vessel that has ever been made. And I want you to make it my way. There are very specific instructions. Well, let's think about it. This is ridiculous. This is laughable. A boat? How could a boat float when the person to make the boat has never made a boat? How could it last and support so much, so many animals and these eight people and room for many, many more people? Ridiculous. People laugh. They did. They still do. They still laugh at the idea of an ark. They still laugh at the thought that Noah, one man, could make this boat. You know, in 1843, there was a boat called the SS Great Britain. Go and look it up this afternoon. It was a sailing boat. It was known for its speed. It had a rudder. And the dimensions of that boat were almost identical to the ark. Look at the dimensions. It says here, 300 cubits long. That's 10 times longer than the height. Six times longer than the width. Almost identical. Do you know scientists in South Korea two years ago, they did an experiment. They tried... Ten different dimensions of boats, vessels, rafts, call them what you will. And the one that was the most buoyant, that stayed afloat, when a big wave came, it rebalanced itself, was the one with the exact dimensions of the ark. Ridiculous. Maybe not. Maybe divine. Maybe God designed it. Look at the dimensions. 300 by 50 by 10. Uncannily the same as was only discovered 150, 160 years ago to be the optimal, perfect design. Well, what other features would it have? It would be made of gopher wood. We don't know what that is. The word gopher is actually the Hebrew word and we use that same word in our Bibles today. Some Bibles say cypress wood. Some some say fir. If you look at the Bible that was translated 300 years before Christ, the Septuagint, it calls it shaped wood. 
If you look at the Bible that was translated 150 years from the first five books, again it says something like shaped or molded wood. It was sturdy. It was robust. It could be laminated wood that was braced together. It had to be painted on the inside, on the outside, and it was to have just one door and one window. Well, rejected, ridiculed, unlikely, improbable, impossible, but it worked. It achieved its purpose. It didn't have to travel. It didn't have to navigate. It didn't have a rudder. It didn't have to go fast. It just had to stay up. Safety and security and stability were what was required, and that's uncannily what it achieved. Perhaps not so ridiculous, because it had a divine design. Well, I want to finish this morning by showing you 12 different ways, very quickly, in which this vessel speaks of Christ. When we look at this boat in all of its detail, it's an enormous visual aid for the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to mention 12 things very briefly. How many arcs were there? Did the people have a choice? Could they go first class, second class? Could they go on the Mediterranean version and the Caribbean version? There was just one. Just one. And there's just one saviour. That's what the Bible teaches. I am the way. Secondly, how many doors? Is there a back door, a trap door, a side door? One door, one way, and there's only one window. That was for a good reason, so the water didn't get in, but it was for another reason. The light came from above. Where the only window was, was above. And you see, the light comes from above into our life. When we've entered into Christ, who is the ark, by the one door, you see the picture building? One ark, one door, one light. This was an ark of free grace. How did you get on? Did you need to save up? No. Did you need a ticket? No. Like the Titanic, the one that sank, this was free and it didn't sink and it won't sink because all who come to Christ, they come by free grace. That's what we preach, that's what we teach a free salvation. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to say 50 prayers. You don't have to touch this necklace or that statue. You come by free grace. You say, Noah, I've heard what you've preached. 
You've spoken about judgment because of my sin. You've spoken about a flood. Nobody else believes it, but I do. I believe what you've said. And I believe it to be true. By faith, I can't see it. It's never happened before. It seems ridiculous. It seems impossible. But I believe it in my heart. I believe the words you're saying. They've got the ring of truth. I look at the world and it's a sinful, violent, evil place. And what you're speaking about, a holy God. And I can come and be rescued and saved from the cesspit of this world that's morally bankrupt. I believe it. And I'll come through the one door and you tell me I don't even need a ticket. All I need is faith and to put my faith in the message that you teach about salvation. And I don't have to earn it. I can't earn it. Oh, what wonderful pictures these are. One ark, one door, one light, free grace. Fourthly, just think how costly this ark was. A hundred and twenty years times I don't know how many people that worked on it because it wasn't just the eight. There were many others Believers that had died by them, Methuselah, Lamech, and their families, and maybe some hired help who didn't even believe that the ark that they helped to make could save them. Sometimes people come and help in churches. They don't even believe in the Savior that the church promotes. No, this was a costly ark. Millions of man-hours would have gone into this. What time, what effort, what cost, what materials. Do you know that speaks of Christ, doesn't it? The cost of salvation. A perfect life given on Calvary's cross with his blood shed. The cost of salvation, infinite, far, far beyond what we can take in and understand. Fifthly, this was a planned ark. This was planned out. God knew that this was the only way of saving eight souls, preserving humanity. He planned it. He gave the details, the dimensions, the materials, the food that should go in, how it should be done. And it was a spacious ark. There was so much room on this ark. The displacement of water that the ark would have taken up, I think it amounts to something like 21,000 tons of water. That's how big the ark was. I forget how many articulated lorries of space it would have taken up. It was so big. There were rooms, it says. Make rooms. 
room for all that would come by faith. Do you know this was an advertised ark? It wasn't hid in the Amazon jungle. Noah promoted it on the social media of his day. He promoted it everywhere he could. He spoke about it. People laughed at him. And he preached and spoke and said, there's coming a day. There'll be judgment. It's coming soon. Methuselah, when he dies, that's what his name means. When he dies, it will come. There was only one year after Methuselah died. The warning bell was ringing. Soon when it rains, it won't stop for 40 days. It was an advertised ark. Are you uncomfortable with that? Are you uncomfortable with giving out tracts and telling people about the one saviour? It's what Noah did. He went to the streets. He went to the hills. He went to the valleys and he said, there is a way of salvation. There's one door. You need to get on the ark. When it starts to rain, you come with me. I'll show you the way. Do you know there was a two sides to this ark? You say there was starboard and port side or whatever the terms are. I don't mean that. There was an outside and there was an inside. That's all that mattered. Were you inside or outside? If you were outside, everybody drowned. Oh, isn't there some exceptions? Somebody that did lots of charity work, somebody that was the, the most active person in their village, wouldn't that be good enough? Somebody that has done great things, got the Nobel Peace Award. No. You're either outside or inside. Not halfway up the ladder. Not clinging on. You're inside or outside. You're either with Christ or you're against him. Christ is either living within you or he's not. It was an ark of stability, security, safety. It was an ark of faith. You only come to Christ by faith. We can't see Christ. We don't want a picture of him. It would be imperfect. We come by faith. And everybody that came to the ark needed to believe there would be a flood, there would be judgment, there would be destruction, and needed to believe that the ark was better than climbing up a tree and hoping. And better than staying on the mountaintop and swimming for your life. That won't do. You need to come by faith in Christ. And it was a covenant ark. We've thought about covenants recently. The covenant said, you believe, you trust in the ark and you will be safe. Do you know nobody died on the ark? Not one animal, not one person. They all lived. And you come to Christ. You have eternal life. 
Nobody, nobody has ever been lost. Once you're in Christ, you're safe forever. Finally, this was an ark of total dependence. If you put your trust in your house, in your possessions, You've seen those pictures of when the tsunami came, people clinging, grabbing on to everything they can, and it took everything away. When it came to the flood, there was only one thing that you needed to cling on to. The ark. The ark. Were you in? Or were you out? There was plenty of room Lots of rooms that weren't occupied. Do you depend upon Christ? Do you believe there will be a judgment one day? The word of God says it. Do you believe that sin must be punished? Your sin, my sin. But there is a way. There was one ark. There was one door. And all who wanted to enter could go in. By faith. Have you gone to Christ? Have you asked him to forgive you for your sin? Have you trusted in the only saviour? You're in the ark. You're safe. When that day comes, and surely it will soon, you'll be in Christ. And Christ will live and dwell within you. And you will be safe and stable and secure. That's the message. It's not about a boat. It's about Christ. And the pictures and the analogies are so clear. The question is, will you believe them? Will you trust in Christ and come into the ark? Oh, may the Lord bless us with these things this morning. Let's sing our closing hymn, number 501. 501.